Chapter Twenty One of Stories of Symphonic Music. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kathleen. Stories of Symphonic Music by Lawrence Gilman. Chapter Twenty One. Liszt. Franz Liszt, born in Reading near Audenburg, Hungary, October twenty-two, eighteen eleven died in byrot july thirty one eighteen eighty six tasso lament and triumph symphonic poem number two tasso lamento e trionfo was conceived as a symphonic prelude to goethe's drama tasso and performed during the celebration at weimar in eighteen forty nine of the centenary of the poet's birth it was revised by liszt in eighteen fifty four and published in its present form two years later the score contains this preface by the composer in eighteen forty nine all germany celebrated brilliantly the one hundredth anniversary of goethe's birth at weimar where we then happened to dwell the programme of the festival included a performance of his drama tasso appointed for the evening of august twenty eighth the sad fate of the most unfortunate of poets had excited the imagination of the mightiest poetic geniuses of our time goethe and byron goethe whose career was one of brilliant prosperity byron whose keen sufferings counterbalanced the advantages of his birth and fortune we shall not conceal the fact that when in eighteen forty nine we were commissioned to write an overture for goethe's drama we were inspired more directly by the respectful compassion of byron for the manes of the great man whom he invoked than by the work of the german poet at the same time although byron gave us the groans of tasso in his prison he did not join to the recollection of the keen sorrow so nobly and eloquently expressed in his lamentation the thought of the triumph that awaited by an act of tardy yet striking justice the chivalric author of jerusalem delivered we have wished to indicate this contrast even in the title of the work and we have endeavored to succeed in formulating this grand antithesis of genius ill-treated during life but after death resplendent with a light that dazzled his persecutors tasso loved and suffered at ferrara he was avenged at rome his glory still lives in the people's songs of venice these three points are inseparably connected with his undying memory to express them in music we first invoked the mighty shadow of the hero as it now appears haunting the lagoons of venice we have caught a glimpse of his proud sad face at the feasts in ferrara where he produced his masterpieces and we have followed him to rome the eternal city which crowned him with the crown of glory and glorified in him the martyr and the poet lamento e trionfo these are the two great contrasts in the fate of poets of whom it has been justly said that while curses may weigh heavily on their life blessings are always on their tomb in order to give this idea not only the authority but the brilliance of fact we have borrowed even the form from fact 
and to that end chosen as the theme of our musical poem the melody to which we have heard the venetian gondoliers sing on the lagoons three centuries after his death the first strophes of tasso's jerusalem canto el arme pietos e el capitano che el grand sepulcro libero di cristo the motive first given out with sombre effect by the bass clarinet and three solo cellos accompanied by harp horns and low strings pizzicato is in itself plaintive of a groaning slowness monotonous in mourning but the gondoliers give it a peculiar colouring by drawling certain notes by prolonging tones which heard from afar produce an effect not unlike the reflection of long stripes of fading light upon a looking-glass of water this song once made a deep impression on us and when we attempted to speak of tasso our emotion could not refrain from taking as the text of our thoughts this persistent homage paid by his country to the genius of whose devotion and fidelity the court of ferrara was not worthy the venetian melody is so charged with inconsolable mourning with such hopeless sorrow that it suffices to portray tasso's soul and again it lends itself as the imagination of the poet to the picturing of the brilliant illusions of the world to the deceitful fallacious coquetry of those smiles whose treacherous poison brought on the horrible catastrophe for which there seemed to be no earthly recompense but which was clothed eventually at the capital with a purer purple than that of alphonse the second portion of the symphonic poem the triumph is introduced by trumpet calls and by brilliant passages in the strings the tasso theme transformed is proclaimed with the utmost orchestral pomp and sonority and brings the music to a jubilant and festive close the preludes symphonic poem number three les preludes composed in eighteen fifty four is a tonal commentary on the thoughts contained in a passage from lamartine's meditations poetiques the score bears as a preface an excerpt from the meditations which may be translated as follows what else is our life but a series of preludes to that unknown song of which the first solemn note is sounded by death love is the morning radiance of every heart but in what human life have not the first ecstasies of awakening bliss been broken in upon by some storm whose cruel breath dispelled every fond illusion and blasted the sacred shrine and what soul thus sorely wounded does not emerging from the tempest seek balm in the solitude and serenity of country life yet man will not long resign himself to the soothing quietude of nature and when the trumpet sounds the signal of alarm he hastens to arms no matter what may be the cause that summons he plunges into the thick of the combat and in the fury and tumult of battle regains self-confidence through the exercise of his powers orpheus symphonic poem number four orphe composed in eighteen fifty four was conceived by liszt at a time when he was engaged in conducting rehearsals of gluck's opera orpheus for performance at weimar and the completed symphonic poem was first played there 
as a prelude to the opera of gluck on february sixteenth eighteen fifty four the score contains a preface by liszt which forms an admirable commentary on the spirit and temper of the music one day i had to conduct gluck's orpheus during the rehearsals it was well-nigh impossible for me to refrain from abstracting my imagination from the point of view touching and sublime in its simplicity from which the great master had considered his subject to travel in thought back to that orpheus whose name soars so majestically and harmoniously over the most poetic of greek myths i saw again in my mind's eye an etruscan vase in the louvre representing the first poet musician draped in a starry robe his brow encircled by a mystically royal fillet his lips parted and breathing forth divine words and songs and his fine long taper fingers energetically striking the strings of his lyre i thought to see round about him as if i had seen him in the flesh wild beasts listening in ravishment man's brutal instincts quelled to silence stones softening hearts harder still perhaps bedewed with a miserly and burning tear warbling birds and babbling waterfalls interrupting their own melodies laughter and pleasures listening with reverence to those accents that revealed to humanity the beneficent power of art its glorious illumination its civilizing harmony with the purest of morals preached to it taught by the most sublime dogmas enlightened by the most shining beacons of science informed by the philosophic reasonings of the intellect surrounded by the most refined of civilizations humanity to-day as formerly and always preserves in its breast its instincts of ferocity brutality and sensuality which it is the mission of art to soften sweeten and ennoble to-day as formerly and always orpheus that is to say art should spread his melodious waves his chords vibrating like a sweet and irresistible light over those conflicting elements which rend each other and bleed in the soul of every one of us as they do in the entrails of every society orpheus bewails eurydice eurydice that emblem of the ideal engulfed by evil and suffering whom he is allowed to snatch from the monsters of erebus to lead forth from the depths of cimmerian darkness but whom he cannot alas keep for his own on earth may at least those barbarous times never return when furious passions like drunken and unbridled maenads revenged themselves upon art's disdain of their course sensual delights by felling it with their murderous tharsi and their stupid fury had it been given me completely to formulate my thought i could have wished to render the serenely civilizing character of the songs that radiate from every work of art their gentle energy their august empery their sonority that fills the soul with noble ecstasy their undulation soft as breezes from elysium their gradual uprising like clouds of incense their diaphanous and azure ether enveloping the world and the whole universe as with an atmosphere 
as with a transparent garment of ineffable and mysterious harmony footnote this translation the preface in the score is printed both in the original french of liszt and in a german version made by peter cornelius is probably the work of mr w f apthorpe End footnote. mr philip hale has thus described the music in which liszt crystallized his fancies harp arpeggios are thrown over soft horn tones for a prelude and then orpheus sings of the might of his art the song of orpheus becomes more intimate in its appeal lento english horn oboe the passage ends and a short phrase is given to the first violin some hear in this phrase a call eurydice these themes are used alternately until there is a climax with the entrance of the first and solemn orpheus theme fortissimo later the orpheus song is again intoned in all its majesty there is a hush and the eurydice theme is heard the mystical end is brought by an alternate use of strings and woodwind instruments in the orpheus song mazeppa symphonic poem number six this symphonic poem composed in the early thirties as a piano piece it was published as number four of the famous etudes d'execution transcendant was made over by liszt for orchestra in eighteen fifty both originally and in its final shape the music is an illustration not of the familiar poem of byron but of verses in victor hugo's les orientales hugo's lines in french and german preface the score the following prose translation is by mr w f apthorpe one so when mazeppa roaring and weeping has seen his arms feet sabre grazed sides all his limbs bound upon a fiery horse fed on sedge grass reeking darting forth fire from his nostrils and from his feet when he has writhed in his knots like a reptile has well gladdened his joyous executioners with his futile rage and fallen back at last upon the wild croup sweat on his brow foam at his mouth and blood in his eyes a cry goes up and suddenly horse and man fly with the winds over the plain carried away across the moving sands alone filling with noise a whirlwind of dust like a black cloud in which the lightning winds like a snake they go on they pass through the valleys like a thunderstorm like those hurricanes that pile themselves up in the mountains like a globe of fire then next minute are nothing more than a black dot in the dusk and vanish into the air like a flake of foam on the vast blue ocean they go on the space is large both plunge together into the boundless desert into the endless horizon which ever begins over again their course carries them onward like a flight and great oaks towns and towers black mountains bound together in long chains everything totters around them and if the hapless man struggles with cracking head the horse flying faster than the breeze rushes with still more affrighted bound into the vast arid impassable desert stretching out before them with its ridges of sand 
like a striped cloak everything reels and takes on unknown colors it sees the woods run sees the broad clouds run the old ruined donjon keep the mountains with a ray bathing the spaces between them he sees and herds of reeking mares follow with a great noise and the sky where the steps of night are already lengthening with its oceans of clouds into which still other clouds are plunging and the sun ploughing through their waves with his prow turns upon his dazzled forehead like a wheel of golden veined marble his eye wanders and glistens his hair trails behind his head hangs down his blood reddens the yellow sand the thorny brambles the cord winds round his swollen limbs and like a long serpent tightens and multiplies its bite and its folds the horse feeling neither bit nor saddle flies onward and still his blood flows and trickles his flesh falls in shreds alas the hot mares that were following just now bristling their pendant manes have been succeeded by the crows the crows the great horned owl with his round frightened eye the wild eagle of battlefields and the osprey monster unknown to the daylight the slanting owls and the great fawn-coloured vulture who ransacks the flanks of dead men where his bare red neck plunges in like a naked arm all come to augment the funereal flight all leave both the solitary home oak and the nests in the manner to follow him he bloody distracted deaf to their cries of joy wonders when he sees them who can be unfurling that big black fan on high there the night falls dismal without its starred robe the swarm grows more eager and follows the reeking voyager like a winged pack he sees them between the sky and himself like a dark smoke cloud then loses them and hears them fly confusedly in the dark at last after three days of mad running after crossing rivers of icy water steppes forests deserts the horse falls to the shrieks of the thousand birds of prey and his iron hoof on the stone it grinds quenches its four lightnings there lies the hapless man prostrate naked wretched all spotted with blood redder than the maple in the season of blossoms the cloud of birds turns round him and stops many an eager beak longs to gnaw the eyes in his head all burned with tears well this convict who howls and drags himself along the ground this living carcass shall be made a prince one day by the tribes of the ukraine one day sowing the fields with unburied dead he will make it up to the osprey and the vulture in the broad pasture lands his savage greatness shall spring from his punishment one day he shall gird around him the furred robe of the old hetman's gray to the dazzled eye and when he passes by those tented peoples prone upon their faces shall send a resounding bugle call bounding about him too so when a mortal upon whom his god descends has seen himself bound alive upon thy fatal croup o genius thou fiery steed 
he struggles in vain alas thou boundest thou carriest him away out from the real world whose doors thou breakest with thy feet of steel with him thou crossest deserts hoary summits of the old mountains and the seas and dark regions beyond the clouds and a thousand impure spirits awakened by thy course o impudent marvel press in legions round the voyager he crosses at one flight on thy wings of flame every field of the possible and the worlds of the soul drinks at the eternal river in the stormy or starry night his hair mingled with the mane of comets flames on heaven's brow herschel's six moons old saturn's ring the pole rounding a nocturnal aurora over its boreal brow he sees them all and for him thy never-tiring flight moves every moment the ideal horizon of this boundless world who save demons and angels can know what he suffers in following thee and what strange lightnings shall flash from his eyes how he shall be burned with hot sparks alas and what cold wings shall come at night to beat against his brow he cries out in terror thou implacable pursuest pale exhausted gaping he bends in affright beneath thy overmastering flight every step thou advancest seems to dig his grave at last the end is come he runs he flies he falls and arises king Vesclangi. symphonic poem number seven footnote the english translation of this title sounds of festivity would not identify it in the minds of most readers with liszt's symphonic poem which is most familiarly known by its german name End footnote liszt has supplied no program of any kind to this symphonic poem composed in eighteen fifty one the music has been variously interpreted it has been said to be a portrayal of scenes that illustrate some great national festival a coronation something surely of a royal character others have believed that it was composed to celebrate the fiftieth anniversary occurring november ninth eighteen fifty four of the arrival in weimar of liszt's patroness and friend the grand duchess marcia polona sister of the czar nicholas i lena roman liszt's biographer offers the more plausible explanation that the work was intended as the wedding music for liszt and the princess caroline von zane wittgenstein between whom in eighteen fifty one the year of the composition of the music a union sanctioned by state and church seemed at last to be possible footnote the polish princess to whom liszt was devoted for many years and with whom he sought unsuccessfully to effect a legal union she was born in monasterzyska kiev february eighth eighteen nineteen and died in rome march three eighteen eighty seven in this symphonic poem a song of triumph over hostile machinations bitterness and anguish are forgotten in proud rejoicing the program thus suggested is as acceptable as any other the battle of the huns symphonic poem number eleven 
in the summer of eighteen eighty five liszt conceived the idea of setting music to a picture by wilhelm von kalbach eighteen fifty five to eighteen seventy four one of the set of six frescoes on a wall of the rosensky gallery in the new museum at berlin the subject of this picture the battle of the huns Hunnenschlacht, is the legend which tells of the terrific aerial battle between the ghosts of the slain huns and romans after the struggle outside the walls of rome in four fifty one which engaged the forces of adela and of theodoric the visigoth the picture has been thus described according to a legend the combatants were so exasperated that the slain rose during the night and fought in the air rome which is seen in the background is said to have been the scene of this event above borne on a shield is attila with a scourge in his hand opposite him theodoric king of the visigoths the foreground is a battlefield strewn with corpses which are seen to be gradually reviving rising up and rallying while among them wander wailing and lamenting women liszt's symphonic poem completed early in eighteen fifty seven has been found by commentators to typify the conflict between heathendom and christianity eventuating in the triumph of the cross the comment of liszt himself contained in a letter written in may eighteen fifty seven to the wife of kalbach is naturally as authoritative as it is valuable i have been encouraged he says to send you what indeed truly belongs to you but what alas i must send in so shabby a dress that i must beg from you all the indulgence that you have so often kindly shown me at the same time with these lines you will receive the manuscript of the two piano forte arrangement of my symphonic poem the battle of the huns written for a large orchestra and completed by the end of last february and i beg you dear madam to do me the favour to accept this work as a token of my great reverence and most devoted friendship towards the master of masters perhaps there may be an opportunity later on in munich or weimar in which i can have the work performed before you with full orchestra and can give a voice to the meteoric and solar light which i have borrowed from the painting and which at the finale i have formed into one whole by the gradual working up of the catholic chorale crux fidelis and the meteoric sparks blended therewith as i have already intimated to kalbach in munich i was led by the musical demands of the material to give proportionately more place to the solar light of christianity personified in the catholic chorale crux fidelis than appears to be the case in the glorious painting in order thereby to win and pregnantly represent the conclusion of the victory of the cross with which i both as a catholic and as a man could not dispense the ideal symphonic poem number twelve di ideale conceived in eighteen fifty six completed in eighteen fifty seven is based on schiller's poem of that title the burden of the poem which to lord lytton seemed an elegy on departed youth 
has been set forth as follows the sweet belief in the dream created beings of youth passes away what once was divine and beautiful after which we strove ardently and which we embraced lovingly with heart and mind becomes the prey of hard reality already midway the boon companions love fortune fame and truth leave us one after another and only friendship and activity remain with us as loving comforters schiller's conclusion which the poet himself admitted to be somewhat tame did not satisfy liszt and in a note to the final section of his symphonic poem he wrote the holding fast and at the same time the continual realizing of the ideal is the highest aim of our life in this sense i ventured to supplement schiller's poem by a jubilantly emphasizing resumption in the closing apotheosis of the motives of the first section liszt's tonal paraphrase as he pointed out in a letter to hans von bulow divides itself after the introduction into four connected sections superscribed as follows one aspiration two disillusion three activity four apotheosis there is no program or argument prefaced to the work but instead liszt has printed in the score as mottoes quotations from schiller's poem these excerpts consecutively arranged are as follows their sequence will suggest the dramatic and emotional outlines of liszt's music footnote the order in which the verses are quoted by liszt is not the order which they follow in schiller's poem and liszt has included certain passages which schiller omitted in the final revised form of die ideal End footnote. introduction then wilt thou with thy fancies holy wilt thou faithless fly from me with thy joy thy melancholy wilt thou thus relentless flee o golden time o human may can nothing fleet one thee restrain must thy sweet river glide away into the eternal ocean main the suns serene are lost and vanished that want the path of youth to gild and all the fair ideals banished from that wild heart they whilom filled aspiration the universe of things seemed swelling the panting heart to burst its bound and wandering fancy found a dwelling in every shape thought deed and sound as a stream slowly fills the urn from the silent springs of the mountain and anon overflows its high banks with regal waves stones rocks and forests fling themselves in its course but it rushes noisily with proud haste into the ocean thus happy in his dreaming error his own gay valor for his wing of not one care as yet in terror did youth upon his journey spring till floods of balm through air's dominion bore upward to the faintest star for never aught to that bright pinion could dwell too high or spread too far how fair was then the flower the tree how silver sweet the fountains fall the solace had a soul to me my life its own life lent to all as once with tearful passion fired the cyprian sculptor clasped the stone 
till the cold cheeks delight inspired blushed to sweet life the marble grown so youth's desire for nature round the statue so my arms i wreathed till warmth and life in mine it found and breath that poets breathed it breathed and i the waves of life how brightly the airy pageant danced before love showering gifts life's sweetest down fortune with golden garlands gay and fame with starbeams for a crown and truth whose dwelling is the day dissolution ah midway soon lost evermore after the blithe companions stray in vain their faithless steps explore as one by one they glide away and ever stiller yet and ever the barren path more lonely lay who loving lingered yet to guide me when all her boon companions fled who stands consoling yet beside me and follows to the house of dread thine friendship thine the hand so tender thine the balm dropping on the wound thy task the load more light to render o earliest sought and soonest found activity and thou so pleased with her uniting to charm the soul storm into peace sweet toil in toil itself delighting that more it laboured less could cease though but by grains thou aidest the pile the vast eternity uprears at least thou strikest from time the while life's debt the minutes days and years footnote the quotations in verse are from lord lytton's translation the prose passage in the aspiration section is from a translation by mr frederick nyacks End footnote. the concluding section the apotheosis of liszt's symphonic poem as it was pointed out above has no analogue in schiller's poem but was contrived by liszt to round out and complete the poet's conception after what seemed to him a nobler and more eloquent plan a faust symphony one faust lento assai allegro impetuoso allegro agitato ed appassionato assai two gretchen andante suave three mephistopheles allegro vivace ironico the full title of this symphony composed in eighteen fifty three to fifty four revised in eighteen fifty seven which has been said to be really a concatenation of the three symphonic poems rather than a symphony properly so called is in translation a faust symphony in three character pictures after goethe for grand orchestra and men's chorus the names of the three characters faust gretchen and mephistopheles head the three movements of the symphony the men's chorus enters only as an epilogue to the last movement the plan of the work the score bears no programme or argument as lucidly and concisely stated by mr h e Krebiel, is as follows by means of musical treatment given to four motives or themes in the first movement the idea of faust is presented a type of humanity harassed with doubt rage despair loneliness the first theme lento his strivings and hopes second theme allegro agitato 
his ideals and longings third theme andante his pride and energy fourth theme grandioso the subject of the second movement is goethe's heroine there is a brief prelude for flutes and clarinets which introduces a melody obviously designed to give expression to the gentle grace of gretchen's character andante then a motive borrowed from the beginning of the first theme of the first movement suggests the entrance of faust into the maiden's mind it is followed by the second extended melody which delineates the feeling of love after it has taken complete possession of her soul this gives way in turn to the third theme of the first movement in which the composer had given voice to the longings of faust and which in its development shows the clarifying influence of association with the gretchen music in the third movement mephistopheles appears in his character as the spirit of negation der geist der stitz vernent it is made up of memories and parodies of the themes of the first movement especially the third faust's ideals and longings which one is tempted to think is made the special subject of the evil one's sport because it enables him to get nearest to gretchen whose goodness protects her from his wiles by these means liszt develops a conflict which finds its solution in the epilogue sung by the male chorus and solo tenor the text is the chorus mysticus which ends goethe's tragedy the translation of which is as follows all transient earthly things are but as symbols the indescribable here is accomplished earth's insufficiency here grows to event the woman's soul e'er leads upward and on the outcome of the struggle is plainly indicated by the circumstances that the words the woman's soul are sung to the gretchen motive symphony after dante's divina commedia one inferno two purgatorio and magnificat this symphony begun in eighteen forty seven to forty eight completed in eighteen fifty five is in two parts the first wholly instrumental the last having a chorale ending prefixed to the published score is an introduction interpretive and analytical by richard pole which there is every reason to believe was inspired as it was evidently sanctioned by liszt omitting certain not altogether essential passages of philosophic and aesthetic speculation pole's elucidation is as follows when liszt sought to mirror in music so gigantic a design as that of dante's conception it became his plan to pass by the dramatic and the philosophic parts that play the role in poetry of sculpture in architecture he could view only the ethical or aesthetical idea that forms the outline of the whole he has therefore put no undue strain upon the means at his command he has not even charged them with a novel burden he has sought to represent in general merely such feelings as other masters before him have vented in other forms in dramatic music gluck mozart and others have painted the terrors of hell grief longing and hope have ever been the main motives of lyric music 
visions of heavenly choirs are an oft-recurring figure of religious music dante's poem consists of three main parts the first has for its burden the bitter barren self-consuming woe that hurls its blasphemies at goodness and divine love the grief that spurns all hope the second reveals a suffering tempered by hope purged by love that is gradually dissolved by its own purifying power the third part unfolds the highest fulfilment of hope through love in that blessed contemplation of god that can only be achieved in another life it was thus possible for the composer to preserve the division of the dante epoch without marring the symmetry of the subject and merging the borders of purgatory and heaven considerations of art as of creed must have induced the composer not to separate the second and third parts in their appearance as indeed they are inseparable in an intrinsic sense by the cleansing and hollowing that the soul undergoes in purgatory it is brought in an unbroken course nearer to the divine presence until freed of every clouding stain it reaches the full contemplation it lay within the power of music to present this psychic growth as a general conception of purgatory itself although dante touches upon this moment of redemption only in a single episode in the twenty-first and twenty-second cantos the form demanded by his design and by his art did not allow him to linger over this purely lyric side in spite of the merging of the last two parts it is easy to distinguish in the outline of liszt's work the three original divisions of which the first corresponds to dante's hell the second to his purgatory and the third following the second immediately and sustained in an all-embracing mystic mood proclaims the heavenly bliss of paradise inferno the first movement takes us directly to the gates of hell which burst ajar with the thunder tones of the first bars while a harrowing recitative of trombones hurls in our ears the beginning of that famous legend over the infernal gates per me si va nella citta dolente per me si va nel eterno dolor per me si va tra la perduta gente through me the way is to the city dolent through me the way is to eternal dole through me the way among the people lost footnote this translation and those that follow are from the english version of longfellow and footnote whereupon the trumpets and horns sound the eternal curse lasciate agni speranza voice entrate all hope abandon ye who enter in the latter is the main rhythmic motive of the whole movement it returns again and again in varying guise and volume at our first entrance within the gates begins that demon tumult we hear all about those tones of woe lament and blasphemy of which the poet tells in the third canto diverse lingue horribile favel parole di dorlor accenti di ira voci alt e fioce e suan di man con el passivano un tumulto il qual segura sempre in quel aria senza tempo tinta 
come la rena quando il turbo spira languages diverse horrible dialects accents of anger words of agony and voices high and hoarse with sound of hands made up a tumult that goes whirling on for ever in that air for ever black even as the sand doth when the whirlwind breathes abyss upon abyss open before our view we behold those fearful depths that fall from one circle to the other down to the most hideous torture the delirium of despair the allegro frenetico paints the madness of despondency the rage of the damned their curses and maledictions without love or rest or solace they are ever torn along to that region where the sins of carnal lust are atoned and a horrible hurricane whirls the condemned souls about in perpetual darkness here the tone poet halts the storm abates it ceases for a moment while are invoked the unhappy lovers paolo and francesca de rimini a dialogue begins and we hear the lamenting sounds nessun maggioro dolor che ricordarsi del tempo felice nella miseria there is no greater sorrow than to be mindful of the happy time in misery footnote the translation of these lines in the prose version of dr john a carlyle there is no greater pain than to recall a happy time in wretchedness may appear to some to be more felicitous as it is more precise than that of longfellow End footnote they pass into the andante amoroso in seven-fourths rhythm where the composer is enabled in the midst of the sobs of hell to let us feel the irresistible charm of youth and beauty not of the heavenly kind the earthly love still lingers here but earthly passion brings its own punishment and the essence of its nature seems expressed in the words that abandon all hope of heavenly bliss and so the sudden breaking in of the motive lasciate ogni speranza though tempered it is the more ominous and forbidding is a profound touch of ethical significance when the last glow has passed of this the most alluring of elusive joys undreamed of sounds ascend from even deeper abysses here hide the sinning souls forgetful of all benefit contemptuous of mercy strangers to all reverence rebellious in their ingratitude the accents here resound of mockery and scorn and gnashing of teeth these phantom shrieks of raging impotence are merged in the strange harmonies that lead to the returning motive of the allegro frenetico the terrible tumult of the damned is enhanced at the close by the thought of the loss of all hope a final refrain of the lachate an all-destroying lightning blast seems to reveal the horrid scene of torture in the bosom of the archangel of evil himself the music here seems to rival the impression of dante's graphic views and forceful lines upon our minds purgatorio and magnificat the episode of francesca da rimini when she sings of the fatal charm of the sweetest of human errors was chosen by list from all the many scenes of the inferno so in the purgatory we find one vision taken from the poem 
right in the initial bars list follows the poet through the first canto after the horrors of hell the mild azure of heaven calms the risen soul in ecstasy they greet the sapphire of the east a wonderfully gentle murmur quieting the spirit puts us in dreams of the sea rocking in eternal radiance we think of the ship that glides o'er its mirror without breaking the waves the stars are still twinkling before the nearing splendor of the sun a cloudless blue o'ervaults the sacred stillness where we seem to hear the winged flight of the angel that soars over the ocean of infinity this is the first soul-stirring moment of redemption banished are all the ghosts of an obstinate fancy of a pride that at once exalts and destroys itself dead are the echoes of unbelieving mockery the last throes of convulsive blasphemy have left the spirit free a solemn soothing silence now prevails in which the soul is loosed from painful rigor where it breathes freely though still without a full pervading consciousness after the angry tempest of flaming nights peace has appeared but peace alone the dawn the light without the sun the wearied soul is not yet ready for a more intense experience this is perhaps the general meaning of the introduction andante this gentle passive state however is but transitory the secret powers and senses soon awaken and with them a ceaseless longing the more it grows the stronger the thirst for the divine reality the keener the desire for its immediate view the deeper is the sense of weakness of unworthiness of inability to reach and comprehend it here a certain dread appears together with a healing a redeeming pain the barren anguish of envious impotence has turned to devout penitence this is however a moment of sombre elegy dante has uttered its oppression most forcefully in the tenth canto where the sinners recall in remorse the good and beautiful deeds that they have left undone there is no other feeling that can so bow down a lofty spirit here the main motive sounds as a chorale hymn a second theme is then sung lamentoso in fervent self-reproach in passive resignation in unutterable grief the fugue is the most fitting figure for the perpetual play of the feeling at once of retrospection and of hope at the height of the fugue the main motive of the chorale hymn rises proudly aloft presently returns humbly and in contrition and broken by phrases of lament dies finally away slowly the heavy clouds of inexpressible woe are lifted the catholic chant of the magnificent proclaims softly deliverance by prayer the breathing of the soul we feel that a conquering penitence is soaring towards eternal blessedness is leading us up through the purifying circles to the summit of the mystic mount that lifts us to the gates of paradise now we have reached the point when the poet of the divine comedy at the first song of paradise stands on the edge of purgatory and catches the glow of the divine light that his eyes as yet cannot directly bear art cannot paint heaven itself but merely the earthly reflection in the soul that is turned towards the light of divine mercy 
and so the full splendor stays hidden from our eyes though it grows ever brighter with the pure contemplation thus far only the tonal poet wanders in the footsteps of the seer he does not follow him from star to star no more than yonder through the various circles of the damned the idea of absolute bliss transcends human description the composer could only point to it as a spiritual state that grows from a chain of experience the union of the soul with god in prayer is foreshadowed in the instrumentation after the sacred glow of divine love has inflamed the human heart all pain has ceased all other emotion is lost in the heavenly ecstasy of surrender to god's mercy the magnificat of individual praise extending to the universe passes into a common hallelujah and hosanna that rises pianissimo in a mighty scale of ancient tone and creed as well like a symbolic ladder up to heaven for a long time the soul dwells in this blessed contemplation that is made sensible by the soft invisible choir a hidden chorus of women the human heart attaining a full exaltation is kindled with a holy fervor and breaks forth with all its strength into a loud jubilation that embraces all worlds of men and spirits the contrition of the sinner has changed into a knowledge of god and has awakened a champion of god when the instrumental climax that stresses this final moment rings out after a pause again passing through the seven steps of the scale and the choir add a last overpowering hallelujah we think of all the martyrs whom dante beheld holy fathers and soldiers of god who died for their faith and formed the heavenly hosts who surround the throne of god footnote the final passage is said to have been conceived as an expression of the thought in these lines of dante from the twenty-first canto of the paradiso i saw reared up in color like to sun illumined gold a ladder which my kin pursued in vain so lofty was the summit down whose steps i saw the splendors in such multitude descending every light in heaven methought was shed thence translated by h f carey in footnote thus closes this mysterious work with the sense of eternal reconciliation of hope fulfilled in the glory of transfiguration two episodes from lanau's faust one the nocturnal procession to the dance in the village tavern mephisto waltz in eighteen fifty eight to fifty nine liszt composed two orchestral paraphrases of episodes from the faust of nicolaus lenau eighteen o two to eighteen fifty der nachlick zug the nocturnal procession and der tanz in der dorfschink the dance of the village tavern these two pieces he desired should be played together there was he admitted no thematic connection between the two but nevertheless they belonged together owing to the contrast of ideas in spite of liszt's wish however the two pieces are seldom heard together the first the nocturnal procession being in fact but seldom played while the second generally known as the mephisto waltz is a familiar number on contemporary concert programs mr frederick nyacks has thus presented the gist of the first episode the nocturnal procession 
heavy dark clouds profound night sweet spring feeling in the wood a warm soulful rustling in the foliage fragrant air caroling of the nightingale faust rides alone in sombre mood the farther he advances the greater the silence he dismounts what can be the approaching light illuminating bush and sky a procession with torches of white dressed children carrying wreaths of flowers in celebration of st john's eve followed by virgins in demure nuns veils and old priests in dark habits and with crosses when they have passed by and the last glimpses of the lights have disappeared faust buries his face in his horse's mane and sheds tears more bitter than ever he shed before the programme of the second episode the dance in the village tavern or mephisto waltz has been set forth as follows by mr philip hale Linnell, in this episode of his faust pictures a marriage feast at a village tavern there is music there is dancing mephistopheles dressed as a hunter looks in at the tavern window and beckons faust to enter and take part in the sport the fiend assures him that a damsel tastes better than a folio and faust answers that for some reason or other his blood is boiling a black-eyed peasant girl maddens him at first sight but faust does not dare to greet her mephistopheles laughs at him who has just had it out with hell and is now shame-faced before a woman the musicians do not please him and he cries out my dear fellows you draw a sleepy bow sick pleasure may turn about on lame toes to your waltz but not youth full of blood and fire give me a fiddle it will sound otherwise and there will be different leaping in the tavern and mephistopheles plays a tune there is wild dancing so that even the walls are pale with envy because they cannot join in the waltz faust presses the hand of the dark girl he stammers oaths of love together they dance through the open door through garden and over meadow to the forest fainter and fainter are heard the tones of the fiddle they are heard through songs of birds and in the wondrous dream of sensual forgetfulness it has been recalled and the fact is historically interesting that when the mephisto waltz was first played in boston under theodore thomas october tenth eighteen seventy in a day that knew not the till eulenspiegel or salome of strauss mr john s dwight a critic of wide influence in the earlier days of music in america was moved to stigmatize the music as positively devilish simply diabolical for he held it shuts out every ray of light in heaven from whence music sprang End of chapter twenty one